0: with the Lord. I, w- I would like to um, continue to share some things. I- I've been, you know, in touch with some of the interesting news that's happening. Aren't these interesting times? Interesting is one of a lot of words we can use to describe them, right? And, and you know, we, uh, I was thinking about this. I was-, I was on Cape Cod for a few days this week, and I was thinking while I was looking out at the, the water that we-, we, as Americans, tend to think of history in four-year cycles, Right. Everything's about the next presidential election or what happened in the last one. And we've gotten this like locked into this mindset as if now God has to move in four year increments. I don't know about you, but I find that I hear that even prophetically of some of the voices that that speak. It's as though four years is is now God's appointed time. But we have been in a season of the spirit for, I don't know, you could decide when the season began, but it's a season of shaking. It's a season where things that we used to depend on, things that were once, you know, we maybe took for granted that would always be there. Basic things even that everybody knows what a boy is and what a girl is. I mean, just the most simple things back to how we were created in the image of God, male and female. That's some very basic things that we used to take for granted. We're now seeing we can't just take that for granted anymore. And I believe it's a time of shaking all things for the sake of awakening a church to the reality that in every generation there needs to be a voice there needs to be a voice and if it's crying in the wilderness then so be it but there needs to be a voice that's not afraid to speak truth that's not afraid to be loving even when the response is not so loving there's got to be a people that are so alive and so alert awake and and interacting with heaven so secure in our identity and who we are in christ that we're not afraid of what might happen in, as the repercussions come, that there's, there's a people that are completely unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, knowing it's still the power of God unto salvation, not just ticket to, to eternal life, but to rescue people out of darkness into light. How many of you are in relationship or at least connected with people right now that are really broken, that are really, really hurting right now? I mean, I, I'm only in my 50s right now, so I don't know what it was like before then. I, the 60s, I've heard some people say it, it feels a lot like the 60s again. Right now, whatever season it is like that, I know that there are more hurting people and more people with diagnosable conditions, mental illness. I mean, I, I think there are way too many of those anyway, but that's a, that's a soapbox issue I won't get on right now. But there are so many people hurting, so many people broken, and there are two ways that we can look at it that was four fingers. Two ways to look at Only use one hand when you're going to gesture like that, right? Another two ways of looking at it. Either we say, oh my goodness, darkness seems to have the upper hand right now. Or we can look at it and say, oh my goodness, what an opportunity to let my light shine. It's easier to shine. It's easier for people to see the Lord when everything they once depended on has just collapsed all around them, Right? You know, in in Isaiah 61, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the to the poor. I cheated. I know that the captives comes later on. He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor and then he names captives and prisoners and so on. But good news to the poor. And and that word is really fascinating. I know I shared this a few years ago with you guys. We broke down that whole passage because that's our anointing. If Jesus was anointed with something, it means that we are anointed with that same thing, right? If Jesus was called to it, it means we are called to it. Body of Christ isn't just a metaphor, so we'll understand some things. We are his hands, feet, mouth, eyes, ears. We are all of him embodied in the earth right now. So good news to the poor simply means those whose lives have become so broken that they have absolutely nothing of their own to depend upon. That now anything that they could have substituted for what God can provide, they have, it's gone. There is absolutely nothing left. What a perfect opportunity. Like the saying goes, when you reach back, rock bottom is the only place to look is up. Right? And that's why Jesus said it's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Taken out of context, people have said, well, that means every, all Christians should be poor. It's not what he was saying. He's saying that what gets hard about it, is that we have other things we can lean on and we can forget that it was God that gave us all of this in the first place, that we could live our life as functional atheists. I never thought of that term until just now. Functional atheists. It means although we might believe in God, we might be in church every Sunday, we might go to Bible study and do all of that when it comes to how we actually go about decision-making in everyday life, how we actually go about what we do with our calling, what we do with our gifts, our wealth, our resources of every sort, that we really live no different than one who does not have any belief in God. And that is a tragic position for the body of Christ to be in. It's a tragic thing for individuals to be in because we have no idea how many heavenly treasures are missing out on by living that way. But it's also tragic for the world because if salt loses its savor, then what good is it for except to be thrown out on the road and used to melt ice or something like that? I don't even know if it could do that anymore. Can it do that? Micopedia? when salt loses its savor, is it still good for melting ice? That's about all we're good for them, melting ice in the winter. So I know I came on hard, but I believe that we're in a really prime time. And if you've been hitting the snooze button on the call of God on your life, as he's been shaking things to wake us up, then I urge you, don't, don't keep hitting that snooze button any longer. Wake up and let's do, this is the appointed time of salvation. There's never been a better time, never been a better time to bring good news than right now, at least in my adult life. So David was the one who established the kingdom. Jesus sat on his throne. He still sits on the throne of David. He sits on the throne in heaven, but in the earth, it was a throne that David provided for him, simply saying, this is a place where heaven and earth meet one another. This is the place where the answer to the prayer we've been praying for 2,000 years will come to pass. Your, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, how about you? I memorized that way back in the Episcopal church I grew up when I was probably five, six years old. And I said it so many times over, it's rare that you pause for a moment. It's, okay, now, now, what if I'm not just supposed to pray that? but I'm the embodiment of the answer to that prayer. What if it actually, the way it actually reads is, come kingdom of God, will of God be, like I'm grabbing hold of something to bring it down into the earth, to make it manifest, meaning visible, tangible, something you could see, not just believe in, but actually experience that the world can actually experience what it looks like when the kingdom of heaven has now come. And what if I'm the answer to that prayer? My small area, my sphere of influence, work, family, neighborhood, wherever it is that God has given me some kind of authority, my purview is another word for it, that in that place, heaven has just come to that place. And I'm responsible now for that. David, we've we've come through the first portion of his journey where he was being persecuted because word got out there in the kingdom of darkness that somebody is alive in the planet who's carrying God's heart and God has intentions on making him king of his chosen people and if that ever if that ever connects if the chosen people of God connect with the authority of heaven in one place well heaven's just got a foothold that it's going to turn into a stronghold you think the devil's the only one who knows how to build a stronghold I'm going to tell you right now, God's the master designer of strongholds. There are righteous strongholds that are absolutely impregnable, and they're gorgeous. You see these pictures in Revelation of what the city of God looks like. They're not using common stones, you know, some slate or or uh, granite or whatever they're using rubies and and gorgeous stones for it, and they're solid they've been tested by fire and tested by pressure it's a beautiful city and it's impregnable those gates they remain open night and day why nobody's for nobody's ever going to try to take this place that's a godly stronghold how many of you would like to be part of building godly strongholds in the world oh man that was like mesa mesa and Reynolds. The only way they get built in the earth is when the only people who have authority to build strongholds build them. The devil builds strongholds, but he has no authority to do it. He's just a real good trickster. He knows how to borrow our authority to build ungodly, unrighteous, demonic strongholds in our personal lives and regions, principalities and powers. He knows how to do that. But until the people of God wake up and say, no more, just living for the American dream. I want to establish a place in the earth for generations to come where there's righteousness, where it's going to take a long time. The enemy might bombard it for generation after generation. It's going to take a long time to even deteriorate what I'm going to build in my life. Why? Because we're going to allow God to build something in and through us that will endure. That was David's heart. That's what we've seen so far about David's heart at every turn when the enemy came to try to destroy His plans to try to destroy the call of God that was on David's life, um, he turned toward God and he never once failed to keep going after the Lord because he was seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's a thousand years before one of his descendants would make that phrase famous, but that's how David lived his life. And so my question for us today is, are we seeking first the kingdom? I mean, Really? seeking first the kingdom, not saying, well, of course God's first in my life. But is that demonstrated in my priorities, in my decisions, in my calendar, how I spend my time, how I spend my money, how I use my resources, how I interact with the people around me, my mindset and my vision for life? Does it demonstrate that the kingdom is first or is the kingdom somewhere down the road? Because to have David's heart, to carry God's heart means everything that we do is about the kingdom of heaven does that mean we miss out on any fun absolutely not it takes our fun 10 times higher does that mean we gotta lay down everything we love doing with the work of our hands heck no he put it in us to do that thing it's just that now it takes on an eternal purpose and meaning to it that lasts far beyond our lives and and when we give ourselves over and say i am all about the kingdom of heaven first now, our life begins to take on meaning, and that's what David's life is about to take on. When we last left David, he'd just gotten word that Saul and Jonathan and three of their sons, three other sons, had been killed in battle. David rent his garments. Instead of celebrating the death of his adversary, David wept and mourned over the loss of God's anointed. That, uh, of all the moments we've looked at so far, I don't think there is one that captures the heart of God better than that. He doesn't rejoice over his wrath. God doesn't rejoice over people whose lives are destroyed because of their unrighteousness, because of their sin, because of their foolish decisions. There is no celebration in heaven at the destruction of somebody who's totally depraved. He wasn't dancing the day Adolf Hitler died. He wasn't dancing the day that Judas died. There was no celebration of any sort. He wept over those things in heaven. David captured God's heart. And he wept over even Saul, who had been chasing him down, trying to kill him for the last maybe decade of his life. And so that man is now postured and ready to be entrusted with the responsibility to be one. There there are some turning points in uh, biblical history, meaning history, period. Abraham was one. When he established a place for god to dwell on the earth he found a man who believed in him got credited to him as righteousness and now he's considered the father of all the faithful to follow why because he just opened his heart and said okay god why not me i will wander and uh, i'll be a sojourner for the rest of my life i'll live in tents i will be called the father of a great multitude while i still have no children 85 years old before he had an illegitimate child a hundred years old before God's promise finally came to pass anybody else weary waiting on a promise of God thank God he's not gonna make you wait till you're a hundred I can about guarantee that Abraham did and so that was a major change all of Abraham's offspring from that point forward had God they, they were going to be the ones to carry the promise of God leading to Christ leading to eternal life and then comes Moses The one who connected God and men, served as priest and king, brought God's chosen people back into their promised land, set some things in order and became a prophet like no other prophet who had lived before. A man who heard God, a man who was God's friend, met with him face to face and established things that we still read about. I mean, he changed history, was completely unique in his day. But he brought about an old covenant. A covenant that even within the Old Covenant said, we're going to have to do away with this one. This is temporary. This this covenant feels like slave and master. This is not how I want it to be, God said. And so uh, Moses did his part, but then came David. And this is a moment where now the people of God are going to become a kingdom up until now. Well, maybe you could say under Saul, he gave maybe a little bit of a false start to a kingdom. But up until now, Israel has been a band of tribes. They have been a family, they have been clans and and so on. They got united under Saul, but they're still not really a kingdom until Saul brought them together. And now David will come and step in and say, okay, this kingdom belongs to God. And we'll see over the next two or three weeks about how David went about doing that. But for today, I just say that David sought his kingdom, not his own, something almost unique in world history. Somebody who said, I'm not looking to establish myself and my children on a throne so I could rule over people. No, no, no. I believe I'm called, this is David speaking, I believe I'm called to establish a place in the earth where God can rule, where God will have priority, where the people of God will not be ruled by a king who is just like all the other kings of the world. No, no, no. My role in the world is to protect the people of God so they can hear God, minister to God freely, be God's people without restraint, That's the role of government, you realize, right? I mean, our founding fathers nailed it on that one. The role of government is not to rule over the people, but to protect the people so that they can relate with God again freely without some tyrant or without some foreign dictator coming in and taking them as slaves again. That was their entire bent. And that is exactly what government's for. David somehow understood that in his day. And so Saul is, is dead now. Now comes the day. You know, it's almost like that moment of, well, now what? You know, David has carried this promise since Samuel the prophet anointed him as a young man at his father's house. And he's had for well over 10 years now, this promise of God, you're going to be king. Now, in a moment, without any warning, all of a sudden he's going to be king. Well, now what are you going to do? Think about that. There's a great song in uh, Hamilton like that. What comes next? Okay, great. You got your freedom. Now what are you going to do with it? How are you going to establish a kingdom? What will you do to make a kingdom that's different, that's actually God's kingdom? Never been done before in all human history. And here is the man, and the only thing he had going for him was that he was a man after God's heart, a man who carried God's heart. He had no blueprint. He sure as anything wasn't going to follow in the footsteps of Saul, who established his own kingdom apart from God's. What is he going to do now? And so here's how he begins. It came about, Afterwards, David inquired of the Lord, saying, should I go up to one of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. David said, well, where shall I go? He said, to Hebron. Remember that, to Hebron. That is significant. Of all the cities and all the places in Israel, the promised land, he didn't go to Jerusalem. He didn't go to uh, where Saul was king. He didn't go to Gilgal. He didn't go to any other place. God said, I want you to go to Hebron that's the place where I'm going to anoint you. This will be for the second time. So David went up there. He brought his wives with them. Abigail, the widow of Nabal, he brought those wives with him. David brought up his men, each with his household, and they all lived in the cities of Hebron. So Hebron's a region, not just a city. And all of his mighty men, all 600 of them now with their families. And actually, there's tons more that came to him. It's way more than 600 now that are with him since the war with the Philistines that Saul died in. Then the men of Judah came there and anointed David king over the house of Judah. Let me just break down some things about this today. And I really want to exhort us. The goal, my my goal, I feel from the Lord today for us is that we will take seriously our responsibility as individuals to seek first his kingdom, to establish his kingdom with the works of our hands, words of our mouth, the way we go about our lives. That is our primary responsibility in life. Everything else that we say and do serves that purpose. And there's a variety of ways. It's as different as there are many members of the body of Christ, how we go about that. But our primary purpose in life is to seek after his kingdom and his righteousness first. So just to catch up on David's story, he tore his garment. He wept over Saul's first act. You know, you think about it. The moment that Saul died, David immediately became king of Israel. It's just a question of when will he be accepted? When will he sit on a throne? When is he going to actually take authority over this kingdom? His first act was to weep, write a song of mourning, and command not only his mighty men but he said, I want all the sons of Israel singing this song now, weeping over the song of the bow, how the mighty have fallen. Everybody's going to sing that. His first act as king was to honor the death of his adversary because that man also happened to be God's anointed. The anointing, remember God's call and gifts are without repentance. Saul would remain king until his last day. David succeeded at letting God take care of business and not using his own hands to usurp the king, which would have brought that spirit into his own kingdom. And he would have had issues with that throughout his reign. He kept his hands clean and now he's king. And he wept over his adversary. So the men of Judah came. They anointed David king at Hebron. Now he's got at least one tribe. This is David's tribe, by the way. This was Caleb's tribe. Hold on, I'll take care of the slides. Is that advancing on its own? All right, so this was David's second anointing. This is the first one, remember, at the house of of his father, Jesse. Samuel came in private. The only ones who were present for that were Samuel and David's family. They were the only ones that saw it. Did word get out on the street? It seems as so, because people came to David and said, hey, you used to be, you know, God spoke that you're going to be the one. You protected us. You've been our shepherd before, and you'll be our shepherd now. That's how they anointed him king. So he was anointed twice. I'll share the significance of that soon. Meanwhile, back in the uh, in the kingdom where Saul was, Abner took it upon himself to appoint ish one of Saul's surviving sons, to be king over Israel. All the other tribes but Judah now accepted him as their king, or maybe they did, maybe they didn't. So he just took it upon himself. He had no authority to do that. This would have been somebody who didn't belong in the kingdom, but Abner is a get her done kind of guy. He said, we need a king, I'm loyal to Saul. Remember Abner was the one who had the jug and the spear stolen and David rebuked him for sleeping on the job. He could have his king could have died. Abner was a loyal right hand man to Saul. So he said, we got to follow the king's line. That's how all the kingdoms of the world. Do it right. Their sons have to become king next. ish which means son of shame, by the way, man of shame. That's a sad name. Parents, if you're, you're thinking of child kids names, don't don't be doing that. Don't don't be naming your kids something like that. they got going to walk with that label. Or, you know, they go up in America now. We name kids and, and like, what does your name mean? You don't want them answering, well, my name means son of shame. Might be some backstory to that. I don't know. like that. Anyway, so he's now going to be king, but he's a weak man. He's certainly not ready to be king. And uh, so there's a war. So um, after a little while, Abner got frustrated with ish And he said, hey, um, I'm, I'm leaving you. I'm going to go declare my loyalty to David. And uh, I'm, I'm out of here because you don't have this. So there's a war between the house of Saul and the house of David. Lasted seven and a half years. It started at this place over here. There was this battle at Gibeah. Twelve men from Saul's kingdom, the house of Saul, twelve of David's men. They fought each other. And these are warriors. This is David's mighty men, right? They all grabbed each other by the head. They all stabbed each other at the same time and dropped dead. It was like the end of a Shakespeare play or something like that. You know, they all dropped dead. Now I could tell all the lit majors because you all smiled at least at that, that one. Everybody dies at the end of Hamlet, right? Everybody's dead at the end. Romeo and Juliet, everybody dies. I don't know, what was up with that man? All of us don't even get attached to any characters in a Shakespeare play if you read it. They're all going to die at the end. That's what it was. And then there was this big war that, that went on. And, and in the middle of that wall, it says um, one of Saul's other sons was, was uh, running and... Um, and, and one of uh, Joab's brothers was chasing after him, and he, or Abner rather was being chased, and he turned around and said, "Hey, stop chasing me. go, go get somebody else. He, I don't want to kill you because your brother Joab, you come and get me. I can't face your brother." And, and finally he kept chasing him, so he stabs him through, runs him through the spear in the middle of it. Joab's mad. Abishai, the other brother's mad. That is not a family to tick off. They're like the mafia. I'll share more about them in the weeks ahead. so um abner comes and he says to david hey i'll bring all the israelites to you now ishbosheth is not a good king everybody will follow you they loved you before joab catches news of that he says hey david why did you agree to to be with him don't you know he killed my brother so joab does him in the alley he stabs him through in the alley this is what joab's like do not have friends or associates like joab in your life they serve a purpose but you don't want them for friends Joab's going to be a thorn in David's side for his entire reign. And this is where it begins. So David said, hey, that was wrong for you to do that. Everybody weep and mourn over this. And then he rebuked Joab publicly, all of them. And then ish was killed. He was assassinated by a couple of um, sons of somebody you never heard of in the Bible before. He only shows up there. I don't know who these guys were, but there were a couple of miscreants. They killed the king, servant the guys who did it came to David and said, hey, guess what? Here is, um, Ishbosheth's head. And you can guess what David did with them. Remember what happened to that dude who came and said, hey, I killed Saul. Those were his last words. That was this guy's last words. Well, you think that if I killed the men who killed Saul, that I'm not going to kill you right now? Who are you to kill a righteous, a good man like Ishbosheth? And they were dead. It's a lot of bloodshed to start this kingdom out. It was an ugly ugly mess. you think this an ugly mess you should read what happened when Solomon became king bloodbath Shakespeare 2.0 and that so it's a bloody mess of what's going on David mourning over and then and then finally they all come to David and they said okay look enough of this civil war after seven and a half years we're tired of fighting we we come they came to him at Hebron remember the Hebron's the place behold we're of your bone we're of your flesh When Saul was king, you were the one who led Israel out. And then we saw you, we sang your songs. Saul has killed his thousands. David is tens of thousands. We haven't forgotten that. It was, you know, top of the charts a decade ago. But we remember the things you've done. And now we know that the Lord said to you that you will shepherd my people Israel. You will be ruler over Israel. And the elders of Israel all came to the king at Hebron. And King David made a covenant before the Lord at Hebron. I would love to hear the words of that covenant. But I'll bet that it included the Lord will be your God. I will be your shepherd, but I will now rule over you as all the other kings rule over you. I will not be a king like the other nations have kings. I'm going to be a king who puts God first. I promise you that the God of our fathers will be the true king. The king of the king of Israel will be our king. And they anointed king over Israel and that place. All right, so let's break this down. David received three anointings as the Lord promoted him into different positions of authority. How many of you have expectations that as you continue on in God, as you grow in years, as years become decades, that God will continue to entrust you with more responsibility? Show of hands, how many of you believe that? Because you know, if you don't put your hand up, I'm going to take longer to make this point. Daniel put up two hands for all of you who are not raising your hand right now. You are, whether you like it or not. You are a child of God, which means you are appointed by God to carry his authority in the earth. You can't get away from it. You can run, but you can't hide. Wherever you go, it's going to be the expectation of heaven that you bring Christ, you bring his kingdom. You should be able to walk into wherever it is that you go, work, live, play, and be able to say, you don't, have to, don't say it out loud, it be a little weird, the kingdom of heaven has now come. Why? Because I'm here. And I'm bringing something that is going to benefit your life, because the King of all kings is the best King. So as we progress, as we grow from faith to faith, grace to grace, strength to strength, glory to glory, as we grow in all those things, we're going to need a fresh anointing for each new season. It's the reason here at Hillside why we have anointings. We we lay hands on deacons, we lay hands on elders, we lay hands on pastors, people who come into new ministry positions. We lay our hands on them. That's because there's a new anointing necessary for each new kingdom assignment. As our increased responsibilities come, we need a fresh anointing. We can't go on yesterday's anointing for that task. You've been a captain over a hundred. If the Lord anoints you now to be captain over a thousand, you're going to need a new anointing for that. The point is we got to call on the Lord and say, God, I need something new for this season. May I never grow to a place. This should be all of our prayer. May I never grow to a place where I think, well, I've learned a few things over the years and now I'm ready for this assignment. We are never, i got news, we are never ready for the assignment. There is nobody, I challenge you, find me somebody in the Bible other than Jesus. That's cheating. Find me somebody in the Bible who when God called them, said, oh yeah, you got the right guy for this job. You were smart to pick me ain't a one every one of them said no who are you really talking to must be somebody else for that job couldn't be me moses had a, like an hour-long argument with a bush over the subject and everybody's followed in his footsteps since why because the people that god's looking for are the ones who already have this humility of heart to know i know that if god's called me to it there's no way i could do it without him If we're doing things with our life that don't require a connection to God, I would challenge whether we're actually accomplishing with our life what God called us to yet. In fact, if we've gone months or years or even decades in life without an utter dependency on God, I would just say it straight out. You have not yet scratched the surface of all of what God has planned for you. The good works that he foreordained in Christ before he laid the foundation of the earth. You, his workmanship without him, you can't even begin to touch those things. David had demonstrated already for the last decade of his life. He knows how to lean on God. So anointing means it's God's authorization. When a king was anointed, he was king for life until God said otherwise and God did otherwise. Right. We've seen how David honored that. Once God says it is so, it is so. It's authority. It is God's authorization and also his empowerment. Everything that we're called to do needs divine empowerment. Again, if we can do it without him, then I would say we haven't been anointed and we haven't yet done the thing he's called us to do. Without it, we're just doing things we could have accomplished without his help. That's not how we want to live our lives. And we might even be those who are building Babel. This is, I'm talking today a little bit about the clash of two kingdoms. As I share, there was a war between the house of Saul and the house of David. There's always a clash when the kingdom of heaven's getting established in the earth. The kingdom of darkness always wants to displace it. And the best example of it that became like a word that was used throughout the rest of the scriptures was what happened at the Tower of Babel. What happened there? They said, let us, let us build a tower into the heavens. They worked together. It seemed like a great idea. Hey, come on, teamwork makes the dream work, and all the people are together. They're in one place. They're building a tower. Problem is, they said, we're going to build something into the heavens. We will exalt ourselves, and we will be God. We don't need God anymore. They were worshiping pagan gods at the time. God frustrated their plans, and that's how Babel came to be. Later on, the city of Babylon, built in that area. So Babel represents the things that we built. Babel is a a place built by men's hands where God's neither welcome nor needed. Again, I'm coming at us today because God's been coming after me with this. We can, yes, even do this with church. Is God in my life right now front and center? Am I building something together with him? Or am I building something that I can and maybe already am doing apart from him? Because if we're building it apart from him, Remember the parable that Jesus told at the end of the Sermon on the Mount of the, the house built on a rock and the house built on the sand? You know, that's the most famous of all Jesus' parables. Building a house on sand means building it on anything other than the Word of God, both written and living Word, that means. So we're going to build our life on what God has said, what God has said in the past and what God is saying to us present. And if we're not building on that, As big as that house may get, as beautiful as the rooms may be, as glorious it might be, it could be as gorgeous as the Tower of Babel. It could be as beautiful and breathtaking and wow! Look at what you built. Look, there are people alive right now that have built cities. You ever look at construction, like big construction? Remember going into St. Patrick's Cathedral? I remember when that was built. But they didn't have the kind of equipment we have today when they built it. You just stand in the middle of that thing. Yeah, that's not even the biggest cathedral in the world. The engineers that have the capacity to build bridges under the English channel, or you'd build a tunnel under bridge over. Tunnel under the whole English channel. that trains could go through. I mean, it's astounding what we're able to do. So just because something looks powerful and looks big and looks like wealth it look strong doesn't mean that it's accomplishing a kingdom purpose and we all know what happens to those things at the last day. We look back at our life and say, what was it all for? I built an empire and it all blew away in the wind like that statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw in that dream. All those kingdoms, one little rock thrown at the feet and all those kingdoms went to nothing. Where's the kingdom of Babylon or Persia or Medea today? We only know about it because we study history. At least some of us do. That's the only reason why they still exist, is in the minds and memories of historians. But how about, well, what if we built, rather than building Babel, we built in connection with God. Babel is the place where we live disconnected from God. I've asked you many times, and I'll keep putting it in there as a reminder, like a smoke detector for our life. If I could, if, if Jesus was removed from my life tomorrow, what would be different? That's, that's between you and the Lord to give an honest answer. What would be different? If the answer is not much, you're in a, you're a terrible place. And I urge you, get your feet back on a rock because when everything can be shaken, whatever you're standing on is going to be shaken. Some have experienced that already. You know, when your 401k became a 201k and, and so on. All those things happen, right? People who have had great wealth, they, they go to the grave alone. And where is their wealth and everything they got Go. So we don't wanna be those people. Ultimately, when we build things disconnected with God, we build things on sand, what we're really doing, the kingdom of darkness doesn't care. How many of you know the devil doesn't care if you believe in him or not? Devil doesn't care if we acknowledge him and honor him. We don't have to worship him. As long as we're not worshiping God, as long as we're not setting our life on him, as long as we're not being the kingdom of heaven, he's fine. As long as he's destroying God's work, he's happy. That's all he exists for. So for building Babel, as good as it might appear to the eyes of man, we're actually welcoming the kingdom of darkness into the world. This is the conflict between two, the two kingdoms. David is anointed king at Hebron. Hebron was first settled by Abraham. When Abraham moved into the promised land, he and Lot parted ways. Lot went to the lush green fields of East Jordan. Abraham came to the mountainous, drier portions of the west part of the Jordan and settled in the, in the Oaks of Mamre, which was in Hebron, and he settled there. That's the place where Abraham made all of his covenants that he had with God. Remember that one when, when God said, hey, I'm going to give you so many kids, you, you're not even going to be able to count them. And then this, uh, it was kind of weird. He cut these animals in half you know, and put them on either side, and, and then this pot of, on fire came through, and, and God promised him all these things about his kids and how they would live in this land and and so on. That's where it happened, right there at Hebron. That was the moment that Abraham became the welcoming place for the kingdom of heaven and the earth. God said, I am making covenant with you right here, Abraham. So Hebron is holy ground. It's the place where all the patriarchs lived when they weren't going down to Egypt, which which never went well. They made their covenants there. This was the city of refuge for the tribe of Judah. This is the place where it it was as New Testament a concept as you could get. If you were running for your life because you accidentally killed somebody, this was your safe space. The priests lived here. It was a city of Levites. So they're all priests in this city. And if you got there, you were safe from the avenger of blood, it says. There's no better picture than what it means to come to Christ. Safe from the one where where a wanted man or wanted woman In that place where we sinned, we come to Christ and now we're in the city of refuge. They can't get us here. This is a safe space, the original safe space, before we revisited that word in modern times. It was the city that Caleb conquered. This is the place where when Caleb said, give me my mountain, in his 80s, this was the place where he went and and he took it to be a city. This was sacred ground. Hebron is the place where the kingdoms of the earth welcome And make covenant with the kingdom of God. And that's why it's significant that David started here. Not Jerusalem. He'll move the capital to Jerusalem. The city of peace was destined to be the place, as God put it, where he'll cause his name to dwell. That comes soon. But right now, all of Israel is joined together in covenant before God at the place of covenant saying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a glorious Holy moment for the nation! Oh, that we would have a glorious, holy moment like that again here in our own nation. That we would be a people who, as a nation, gather together in the place of covenant. It doesn't have to be a particular geographic location, but the people of God and the grateful people of a nation that's been so blessed of God will come and say, "We want to revisit our covenant with you and reinstitute our national covenant," because blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And I don't want to get too much into America right now, but it is indisputable that those who established us as a nation consecrated our nation to not just God, but to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is historic fact. It's even in congressional record. The first Congress that met in Manhattan, New York City, was the first capital. I'm very proud of that as a native New Yorker. They met in Manhattan. You could go right to the spot where they did it. And George Washington and the first Congress, while they were still in session, made intercession to God and said, this nation belongs to you. We couldn't have done it without your sovereign hand. We won't survive as a people without your sovereign hand. Oh, are we in need of a Hebron moment today? But the people of God are the only ones that have authority to stand in covenant on behalf of a nation before God. So if we don't do it, you know, we sang a song earlier, and I forget which one it was, but it was about the words of our mouth. You know, what, what was it, Stephanie? Help me out, We speak life. To, we speak life to this nation. Thank you. I knew you'd have it. We're speaking truth, We're speaking truth where lives, lies, lies have... I <laughs> say I need the words. Lies have... But, but if in our private time, and in, if the words that we share with those out on the street have been speaking curses over our nation, have been complaining, have been talking down about, oh, man, our nation, what a moral decay and all, all this stuff which may be true, but if that's what we're using our mouth to do, instead of saying, God, we need you right now, we're calling on your name, we're humbling ourselves and praying, as was said the day the first temple was dedicated, we're going to humble ourselves and pray, we, your people, will humble ourselves and pray, we will seek your face, we will turn from our wicked ways and just hope to God that you hear from heaven. We don't have to hope to God. We know he promised us already, but that's where it begins. So it was in David's day in 1000 BC. So it is now in 2023, the US of A. So it is for any nation who wants God to be their Lord. So the Lord told Samuel on the day that Israel asked for a king. Remember they said, give us a king like all the other nations. When at, the, at that day, when Samuel was the prophet, this is when Saul was going to be appointed king 40 years from the moment we're in today in David's life, that, that Samuel complained to God. He said, well, what is this? Why do they want? Why are they rejecting me from their prophet? Why? And God said to them, do, look, do what they say. Give them a king. I'm going to give them a king just like all the other kings of the nations He's going to take their daughters to cook for him. He's going to take their sons and they're going to fight for him. He's going to take their horses so that they could go out in front and have a big parade. Look at the king. He's now coming. That's exactly what kind of king Saul became. But God said to Samuel, look, it's not you. Don't take it personally. They have rejected me from being king over them. They've rejected me from being king over them. Well, now God's going to turn the tables and say, okay, we're going to have a king, but now I'm going to set my man on the throne. Now you've experienced my people this is israel now now you've experienced what it's like to have a kingdom like the rest of the kingdoms now i'm going to give you a little taste of what it would be like to have me to be your king look in paradise there are no kings there are no people to rule over other people we don't there are no governments anymore there's there's none of that anymore it's just like how god always intended we relate directly with God. We are self-governed. We don't need anybody to tell us what to do. We don't need anybody to punish any evil doing because there is none. That's ideal. That is the goal of life. That's what the world was made to be. In the meanwhile, we have governments to protect us from the bullies and all those kinds of things. Yeah, but, but paradise is not that way. That is not the goal. And for a moment, it, it, God said, okay, with David now, I'm going to give you a taste of what it's like to have me for your king and watch. And it became what was known as the golden age of Israel, David, and then Solomon, 80 years worth of rule were considered the best time that Israel has ever had to date as a nation free from their enemies, building, living in peace, planting vineyards, eating their own, eating from their own vines and fig trees, living in that kind of a way for 80 years, two generations got to enjoy that under their leadership. So when Jesus came into the world, we can see why the angel announcing his birth said, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, of all the kings have ever lived. That's what prompted this whole series and why I felt to take time as a a congregation, as a family, to dig deep into the life of God's man, of the man after God's own heart, the man with God's heart, because we have got to be this. We have got to become this. This is what we're born for. This is the only purpose for being the church, is to provide a place again where Jesus could say, I'm going to sit on that throne that they have established. A people who say, You are welcome in this place. A people who say, Swing wide, you ancient gates. Lift up your head, you ancient doors. Why? So the king of glory might come in. He's always seeking an opportunity for a people to say, This is yours. You've given me authority. I don't have the authority to say the gates are open. Come in, king of glory. That's always been the purpose, and that's what we exist for. David was not establishing a kingdom for himself. That's what made him so different from every other king before and most kings after. He was establishing a throne for the king of kings to rule from in the earth. The throne in heaven is undisputed. There is no war between the kingdom of darkness to overthrow that throne. That rebellion, that ancient rebellion lasted all of a millisecond. And as soon as it came up in Lucifer's heart to overthrow the throne of God, he fell like lightning from heaven. That was it. It was over before it started. There is no chance or opportunity for that throne in heavenly places ever to be occupied by anyone but whom the Father appoints. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ the name above every other name, that at at that name every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, all the living and the dead and all those who are in heaven, and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is indisputable. The thrones that are in dispute are the thrones here in the earth. Those are the thrones where the warfare is. And the way spiritual warfare is won is when the Davids of the world, male and female alike, say this throne, this nation's authority Belongs to the king of all kings. Now come and rule and reign. And then when the prince of peace is in charge. Nation prospers. Crime goes down. People are happy. The singing in the streets. instead of violence in the streets. There's no more addiction. There's no more crime. There's no more murders and muggings. And there's no more rape. And there's no more any of that stuff. Because everybody's just happily serving the Lord. That's paradise. Not pie in the sky by and by. But your kingdom come your will be done now on the earth as it is in heaven so the first and most important question that we should be asking about any of our endeavors whose kingdom am i establishing because if we're not establishing the kingdom of heaven intentionally saying god this belongs to you and i'm going to partner with you in what i'm doing with my life right now then we are building babel we are providing a platform for the kingdom of darkness to keep people away from God, which is this whole bent. So here's a, here's a little survey question for you to check is like a, it's not scientific. I designed it myself and we'll probably revisit it and redo it in the years ahead. So I just thought of this a couple of weeks ago. Here's some ways of measuring how much am I seeking first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, kingdom of God and his righteousness. So is this kingdom first on Sundays only? And I I am sad to report that by every survey that's reputable, 80%, 80% of those who call themselves Christian, Sunday is the only time they have interaction with God. Meaningful, rich, and and at that, not even 100% sure that that's even happening in every church, that there's an actual connection with God happening. So level one would be Sundays only. At least... At least you're in church around the people of God. Or maybe they'll rub off on you. That's a great start. But that is not seeking first the kingdom of God. That's, hey God, you got my leftovers. I'll give you two hours a week. The other 176 are mine. To do whatever I want with. Maybe his kingdom comes in a prayer before your meal. Right? I'm going to devote a few moments here. Rub-dub-dub. Thank God for the grub. ye yeah God. And then, and then we're going to eat. So that's the little bit in it. <laughs> I learned that at camp like 40 years ago. <laughs> that's not how we pray at the Blair House before me. I mean, I do sometimes make my kids laugh like I just did there. Prayer before meals. Maybe we all forgot a little bit more like he's got five minutes of of our quality time in the morning. Right. Before we get on with our day, you can have five. I'll give you five. But what's uh, what's what's it? What's Dutch sheets? to? give him 15, give him 10. You know, the Dutch is going to be more than five. Give him 15. They give him 15. And I I know Dutch sheets. I've met him. I've had lunch with the man. He is as passionate. He's like, oh, always on 10. How he appears behind a pulpit, how he appears on his podcast. He is always there. He's the most intense man other than Lou Engel that I've ever met. And he is just like that. So, all right, give him 15 it's it's his desperate appeal to man i can't get i I talk to christians all the time and it's like they don't talk to god much at all they hear about god from someone else which is a secondhand faith which is no faith at all so maybe it's morning devotions or or maybe we've maybe come to a place where all right i've got consistent and persistent prayer like i'm I'm in touch with god i am daily before him i'm legitimately seeking his face I want His interaction. I love that He loves me, and I love this interaction that I have with Him, and my life is alive to Him, and I take praise breaks during the day sometimes, and I I just love the fact that God knows me, and I'm known by God, and so I'm aware of that. That's next level, but until it begins to penetrate into how we live life, right, next level might be God is my co-pilot. Sometimes we even switch seats, and I let him drive, fly for a little while. So at least I've given God some authority to dictate where I'm going in life. Maybe that was the result of spending time in the secret place and developing and cultivating a connection with heaven. So, so now, I do, now I do life with him sometimes and sometimes I take the reins because I think my way is better sometimes. Don't, I mean, don't look at me. All of you do that too. And then comes the next level where His kingdom is my vision, where everything that I do, I'm looking at it. This is not just a hobby. This is something that cultivates the kingdom in me, whether I'm because I'm laughing while I'm doing it or I'm cultivating skills that will benefit the kingdom down the road, whatever it is, everything that I do, my work has become holy now. The works of my hands are now anointed by God. And if I'm building something or I'm crafting something or I'm typing something or I'm calling somebody whatever it is it's all anointed it's the kingdom now and I'm looking for evidence I'm looking for God to show up in all of what I do I think the best level to live at is man apart from him I, I do nothing there is absolutely no part of my life that God's not involved in he's involved in my leisure and play he's involved in my work he's involved in my family he's involved in everything that I do it's as if we're one like he and the father are one that's, that's the level to aim for. So wherever you find yourself on this scale, I urge you, move toward seven. Leap and bound toward seven. Find some trampoline and boing and get into that place as quickly as you can because I'm telling you, every day that we go, that we're living a different way. We're building on sand or we're establishing another kingdom with our lives. We have authority that everything we build will have weight to it. We don't want to be found establishing Babel. We want to be those who bring the kingdom of heaven. Now there was this war between the house of Saul and the house of David. I'll just close with this today. When God's kingdom is being established, the hardest resistance almost always comes from the old order. You see it throughout history. You see it throughout church history. Every move of God that had some life to it, that had some necessary change to the church, thrived for a while. Then administrators, got. they found a way to administrate the move of God, and some other people got hungry for more. And they said, here's feel the things we're reading in here, and we're not quite doing that, so maybe we should try this. And they said, not in this church. And they kick them out, and they start a new movement, and that's why we have so many denominations today. The old order almost always resists. So the house of Saul, those who were loyal to the mad old king. It's an amazing thing. Even a king who's dysfunctional as Saul was, has a band of loyal followers and they will always, even though it's dead and dried up for decades, dead and dried up, there are still people that will hold on to it because we love familiarity. We love at least it was predictable. At least we know Saul might be foaming at the mouth, but at least we know there's a king in there. He might be cutting people's heads off and he might be doing all kinds of crazy things and the Philistines are raiding all of our border towns, but at least we have a king in the uh, we didn't have a king before him, you know. And there's this holding on to the old, and we we're so prone to that. So there's this battle between now David has come, and David has demonstrated a lifestyle, and he's been publicly acknowledged before all of the authorities in heaven and on earth as being a man after God's own heart. And now he's going to establish a kingdom as a man after God's own heart, and all hell is going to break loose on him. So there's a seven year war. The house of Judah recognized him right away. And all of this warfare has gone on. It was like that for David. It was like that for Jesus. Jesus did not peacefully come into the world. He said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. And he was a man of peace. And, you know, I mean, he's the prince of peace. But he said, there's going to be some necessary severing that's got to happen here. And he was right. Because all of those, he came to his own, his own received him not. All of those who were experts in Messiah, the ones that first shouted, crucify him. They demonstrated by the way they responded to him, they'd been establishing a different kingdom. It had nothing to do with the kingdom of heaven, which is why John the Baptist first, then Jesus came preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Oh, Israel, you think you're the kingdom of God, but you're establishing the kingdom of darkness with the works of your hands. And he called them out on all these things. They didn't put Jesus on a cross because he came to start a new synagogue on the corner. He said, upon this rock, I will build my church ecclesia it's a governmental term he didn't say i've come to uh, on this rock i will build my synagogue i'm, st- I'm starting a, compa- a competing church down the road from rabbi moshe they didn't put him on a cross because of that they put him on a cross because he said the kingdom has now come i've come to start something brand new and all of you are going to have to take a back seat because heaven's come to town there's always warfare think it not strange concerning the fiery trial where the kingdom of heaven has come there will be warfare i just talked with a sister this morning recently baptized and it's like all hell broke loose welcome to the family that's how it goes for all of us the enemy saw what happened he sees the kingdom has begun and there's no way he's just going to let that go there's going to be warfare i got good news for you as bob mumford used to say i read at the end and we win you're going to win. Hold fast to the confession of your faith. Hold on to what it is. But this is a day for the people of God to be bold and courageous, and not back down. I'm not saying to go instigate rude fights with people online. Just don't do that, please. Don't post on Facebook. Don't post. Don't tweet. Don't be a twit. <laughs> Just don't. Don't get into arguments with people you don't even know and, you know, start these fights out there. That's not how we bring good news to the people that are in our lives. Be the face of love and the face of confident, authoritative love that truth is truth, lies are lies. And I don't have to agree with your lie. I will be the boy in the emperor's new clothes if, if I'm pressured. I said, no, he naked. He does not beautiful clothes he's wearing. I'm going to speak what's obvious to all of you, but you're afraid to say it. I'll be the bold and courageous ones who speaks truth in love. Because I think I shared about the emperor a few months ago, right? All those people who were lying saying, oh, your clothes are so beautiful. They set him up to be humiliated. And we're setting people up for humiliation. Some of them are finally coming out and saying, that was a really bad idea. And they're suing the people that prodded them down that road, which is good and right anyway that was a soapbox get off of that we've got to be those who are bold and courageous and unafraid to speak the truth be unbending and unyielding and standing on truth but be loving and gracious in the way it's presented and the way we stand for truth firm and gracious all at the same time that's nobility because I got news for you we got all these conspiracy theories around there I saw a shirt the other day it said all my conspiracy theories are now conspiracy facts You know, and and a lot of them just proved to be true. People conspire. We can read about the original conspiracy right in the Bible in the Psalm of David that I'll just read to you in closing. Psalm 2. This is a Psalm David wrote when he became king. And he started to learn some things as king that he didn't see before he was king. You you do, God's promoted him now to the highest position in the land. and, And now he sees things. Um, leadership, like one of the words for elders in the Bible, means overseer, somebody who can see the big pictures and anointing to see the big picture and always have it in view all the time. That's what leadership has to be. So, David now has a new perspective and he starts writing Psalms that are prophesying about the Messiah, his descendant. And Psalm 2 says, Why are the nations in an uproar and the people devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand. And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. See, it's always been happening. They always conspire. It's not new. Sometimes this is, this is another thing we do as Americans, especially. We think of history as being what's important in history is what happened in my adult years. And that's all the history that matters. What I've seen in my lifetime. When you broaden it out, there's there, there, nothing new about what we're experiencing as a nation right now. We have had a a full-on civil war before in this country. All right? So don't let those voices, remember I shared this, don't let the media voices box in your perspective, broaden it to heaven's perspective that there has been a conspiracy prophesied since 1000 BC that wherever Jesus is being set up by the Lord because he's been welcomed by the people who have authority to be the king of a nation, there is going to be a conspiracy To try to take that leadership down to keep him from being established as a leader of a nation so we should not get used to it we should accept that it's going to happen and then be bold and courageous in how we stand they think let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us he who sits in the heavens laughs the lord scoffs at them so the next time you make the mistake of watching the news and by laughing And then, you know, you've tapped into heaven's response to all of the injustice, the the two-level, two-tier justice system, all of those things that could drive any righteous person crazy. Don't let it suck you in. Sit back up in heavenly places because the Lord who sees it all, who saw it all before it happened, who saw that David would be resisted by the old order, who saw that Jesus would be resisted by the old order, also, sees that we will be resisted by the old, old, old order. We are always to be the revolutionaries of a society until the nation becomes 100% ruled by Jesus. Then we are always to be the countercultural revolutionaries, not burning and looting and doing all that ridiculous stuff, but being forceful. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence. Violent men take it by force. There is going to need to be a firm hand. Moving the kingdom of heaven forward. It begins by not bending and not cowtailing, not cowering in fear at the words that we're being forced to say, at the things that we're being told. You know, I used to get an annual letter from the ACLU right around election time, and it was a reminder that if you endorse a political candidate or if you do blah, 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 blah from the pulpit, and that's all I can remember it said then we, we, uh, we want you to remember that we can come after you and you might lose your 501c3. And I used to read the first paragraph of that letter and tear it in two and throw it in the garbage. Because we are the people of God and we will say what the Lord is saying. We will not be dictated to. We will not be told what we can and can't do. I don't personally believe I should endorse a political candidate anyway. But I'm not going to bend and say, I'll only say, there were pastors at one point in, in the city of um, uh, Dallas, Texas. The mayor asked them to send transcripts of their messages to the mayor's office so that she could look them over. I thought, I might just start sending my podcast or my, well, at that time it was still cassette tapes. I might just send them cassette tapes and just see what they do with that. There's a need to have a backbone and be bold and courageous about we will speak what the Lord says. We will do as the Lord says. We will love, we will respect, and we will remember that if given a choice between should I obey God or should I obey a man, it's going to be God every time. I don't need to pray about it. Are you all okay with that? All right. Just making sure. I don't know if we're being monitored. Maybe we'll get a, I, I doubt it. But you never know. He'll speak to them in his anger, terrify him in this fury. As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion my holy mountain, and I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You're my son, today I've begotten you, ask of me, and I will surely give the nations of the earth as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. That's the decree of the Lord. Ecclesia, the called out ones. The governmental structure was everybody gather. That's why it means called out. Ecclesia, all the men gather. Back then it was only men in government. We're past that stage of history now. Everybody gather and hear the decree. And when you hear the decree, you're responsible in your businesses, your families, your spheres of influence to enforce that decree wherever you go. The authority was then given to all the citizens of that city to enforce you could make sure that your neighbor was doing it you can make sure whatever the new rule was that you had rights to enforce that rule and if somebody wasn't then you called people in how we exercise that spiritually is that we go everywhere declaring the kingdom of heaven has now come by a demonstration of our life the words of our mouth and by not bending or cowtailing, by saying the lord is my god the lord is my king come on, let's stand on our feet So, um, Can I, get I, yeah. Hello. Hello. Um, well, I thought I'd give uh, everybody a little challenge that I just, that God just gave me. So we had this great message today. And um, so, like, before you leave today, or even just after Steve Praise, why don't you write down, like, one thing that you got out of this message? And, and maybe one thing that God would be prompting you to do maybe this month this coming year and, and then and then that way you can act on that and then like so somebody would ask brian this afternoon what did steve preach about well i don't know but it was good so at least we can do one thing to remind ourselves of what steve said today and and one thing that we could do to be proactive about i'm going to do that myself so i just want to encourage everybody uh, to do that as well well there you go that was a great closing do something. Don't be a hearer of the word and not a doer. And meanwhile, have a great week seeing the kingdom of God everywhere that you go. I love you guys. Amen. Amen.